0: All right. Hey guys, welcome to RCIA class three. Uh, this is my first time reading through this set of notes. I just redid them completely from scratch. I'm probably going to find uh, some errors as we're going along here. So I might pause the video occasionally or, or make some changes on the fly. And over time uh, the notes linked down below this video may not fully reflect these notes here because um, they're just going to change over time. That's just how it is. Um, But this is basically Salvation History, and Salvation History is the story of the Bible. So this is my makeshift Bible, this is actually a book on the Old Testament. But uh, if you ever look at a Bible, this much here is the New Testament, (laughs) and this much here on the bottom is the Old Testament. Um, It it is uh, the vast bulk of it, and so this particular class is a longer class um, we may even do a, a two part class in class, um, but we're going to try and summarize pretty much all of the history that happened here in a very uh, short amount of time, you know, about an hour or hour and 20 minutes. So, again, this will be a longer video, a longer class, um, but I'm just going to go right through it. And hopefully, this will make sense uh, as you're following along. The catechism says the coming of God's Son to earth is an event of such immensity that God willed to prepare it. Over the centuries, he makes everything converge on Christ, all the rituals, all the sacrifices, the figures, the symbols of the first covenant covenants. He announces him through the mouth of the prophets who succeeded one another in Israel. And moreover, he awakens in the heart of the pagan, a dim expectation for this coming. So Salvation History is going to tell the story of that restoration that we just saw foreshadowed in Genesis 3, 15, and 16. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and yours. He will crush your head while you will strike or bruise his heel. Um, and so we are going to be looking at this process of restoration whereby God works through successively larger and larger covenants that reveal something about who God is, um, his his very essence and his relationship to us, either in himself or in Christ, uh, they reveal something about God to us, and they get progressively larger and larger in scope. So if scripture is one story, uh, every story needs a main character, and the main character of the Bible is God, ultimately, uh, and his bride, his wayward bride, uh, which, of course, is us. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, very often Israel is pictured as a wayward bride. That's kind of the basis of the entire uh, writings of the poor poor prophet Hosea. Um, it's a long story there, but basically God said, I want you to live your life uh, as a As a type of what I've put up with uh, with Israel. So he has him marry a a prostitute named Gomer Uh, is a terrible name and and terrible choice of bride. And she's unfaithful to him. And he says, nevertheless, I want you to love her because I want your lived life to be my experience uh, with my people. And uh, there's something utterly profound about that at the same time. So that's what we're gonna be looking at. So if, if scripture is a story and God's the main character, then salvation history is the love story of God and his developing relationship with his people um over the course of of the many, many years. Um this is uh this is a note here, an image I borrowed from I think it was Scott Hahn um who popularized his picture. Excuse me. But you'll see a series of covenants, most of them explicit. Um Ending up with Jesus in the New and Everlasting Covenant, which we're actually not going to get to today in order to, to shave off some time uh, on this class. I decided to put Jesus uh, next class when we'll just talk about Jesus in general. Uh, but all of these co- covenants are going to get progressively larger and larger in scope. They're going to start with a husband and his wife and then a father of you know and his kids and their wives and then a chieftain and a tribe and then a judge and the nation and then a king and the kingdom and ultimately the one true high king and priest and everybody. This is the full restoration that was promised all the way back in Genesis. And, uh, and in Greek, the word for that again is katalikos or Catholic, which means the whole or the entirety or the universal, right? So covenants, uh, the concept of a covenant comes from the Latin word, which means to come together to convene. Um, but it's the concept of an exchange of selves. It's, a, it's an oath to be true to one's oath. Um, similar not to just a, a formal contract, but to, being a family member, right? You might have a an uncle or a cousin or a nephew or a brother or a sister uh who's kind of a, a aloof sometimes. Maybe they're not even always there for you. They're 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 the type of person that most people would want to be around. But because they are your family, you continue to care for them, uh take care of them, uh look out for them, uh, etc. And so the idea of a covenant is this, this sacred kinship or sacred bond between two different parties. It's ratified by swearing oaths and, again, a giving of self. Um, this is from uh, I think Scott Hahn, uh, quoted in the Lexington Bible Dictionary. Uh, it's a sacred kinship, a bond between two parties, ratified by swearing an oath. God's covenants are prominent in every period of salvation history, and they reveal the saving plan of God for establishing communion with Israel and the nations, ultimately fulfilled by the death and resurrection of Christ. Covenant language is more prominent in the Old Testament, which reflects its futuristic character as a story in search of an ending. I love that phrase. That's actually the whole reason I included this whole definition. It's the idea of a story in search of an ending. The language of divine kinship, father and son, emerges in the New Testament because Christ's fulfillment of the old forges familial bonds of divine communion with all of humanity. So, whereas a contract would say, this is mine and this is yours, an oath says, well, this is ours. And a covenant says, not only is this ours, but I am yours and you are mine. God has more or less explicitly entered into six covenants over the course of time with his creation. And these are what shape the backbone or the the story of salvation history, uh, stemming again from that promise of reconciliation back in Genesis 3. Uh, You're going to know most of these stories, at least you're going to be familiar with them, because they're the big stories of the Old Testament. There's a reason that people have focused on them over the course of the last uh, two millennia, Uh, and even longer than that, obviously, uh, with the Jewish people uh, focusing on a lot of these uh particularly Abraham and Moses and David uh all very very much each one is going to going to uh grow progressively larger in scope they're going to foreshadow Jesus uh or God in some capacity uh his role in relationship to us um with Adam it's the bridegroom with Noah it's a father um, we have a judge we have a king you know all of these are things that that point towards God's relationship with us. And they get, again, progressively larger in scope. And every time God is faithful to his side of the covenant, despite human unfaithfulness, selfishness, pride, perversion, hatred, and jealousy. Uh, and again, ultimately they help us to understand an aspect of God or Christ in our darkened state of intellect. So the first covenant, I'm actually going to gloss over because we just spent two, uh, two sessions talking about Adam and Eve. And at this point, I don't think I need to go too far into that. I think you understand the general idea. The, the concept of the covenant was Shamar. Eat of the tree, the fruit of the garden. Don't eat of the bad tree and uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So the, the covenantal role here, uh, between God and Adam, who is a, a husband, Uh, is just that, right? God is ultimately the bridegroom. Jesus himself is called the bridegroom. And in fact, Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3, Genesis 1 and 2, uh begins with this implicit uh, marriage. In fact, uh, Genesis says the man clings to his wife. Right. Um, so we know that it begins with a marriage. And you know what the very last thing in Scripture is in Revelation at the very, very end of Revelation, it's the wedding feast of the lamb. And so it ends with a marriage. So marital language is literally just infused throughout our understanding of the Trinity, uh, throughout our understanding of salvation, and all these other things. Um, and then the sign of this was this kind of a uh, less implicit, but, and, and there's a lot of other things going on here, but essentially the sign is the Sabbath rest, right? So God blesses the seventh day, and he rests on it. Not that God needs to rest himself, um, but God saw it fitting to do this. And also bear in mind that the first of these covenants with, with Abraham, uh, with Adam, and with Noah, and with Abraham, as well as his, his descendants, um, Isaac and Jacob. All of this is prehistory, right? Um, these first five books of the Bible, um, we're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis, obviously. Um, but the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, the books of Moses, purportedly written by Moses, and Moses is a baby in Exodus one, so he's still giving even his own prehistory. Uh, that, uh, almost certainly he would have been filled in on that one, uh, and understood it a little bit more. But, uh, yeah, so this is definitely, um, you know, again, that's one of the reasons we approach Genesis one or Genesis in general and understand that there's probably going to be some poetic or figurative language in here. Not that it's a false book or that it's telling us false things, but that it's not trying to tell us a literal history in the way that we're used to reading a history book, where it's literally just this happened. and This happened. It's using poetry. It's using allegory in order to explain to us these these primordial moments in human history. But we can actually find a lot of bits of history that bear out um, the reality of some of the stuff we find even in Genesis, which is pretty exciting. I'm not going to have time to go into a lot of that today, um, but that's definitely something if you want to look up on your own, you're welcome to, um, or if you want some help, that's something I can help you look up as well. So, um, So again, we've talked at length about the man and his wife. Suffice it to say, this was an implicit covenant. Uh, more than an explicit covenant, uh, and they were created good by a God who knows them and loves them and, and, and is good himself and, and, and wants to give that to them. Obviously, uh, you know, it's it's more of an implicit covenant than an explicit covenant because God doesn't say, "This is my covenant with you." Uh, whereas with you're going to see the next few covenants, He says the "word covenant" like all over the place, like it's just covenant, 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 covenant. Um, this is more of an implied covenant. God gave them everything, right? Uh, and so they're they're part of the bargain. <laughs> they're part of being alive and in and, and being created. Is trust me, for I created you. And of course, we know how that all plays out. Um, incidentally, I, I mentioned last time. That when they cover themselves, they cover themselves with fig leaves and fig leaves have a chemical in them that causes like rashes, kind of like it's not quite as bad as poison ivy, uh, but it's definitely not uh, nice and soft and everything else. And so one of the things Genesis tells us, which I always thought was interesting, is the fact that God then makes for them clothes of animal skins and gives them to them. And so here we see it. Innocent blood is being shed as a repercussion for the very first sin. Um which is just fascinating, right? So we're going to see blood actually plays a part in almost all of the covenants, right? Um, After this, there's a a little bit in in Genesis uh, 3, 4, and 5 leading up to Noah and his family. uh, Adam begets another son, Seth, uh, as well as many other sons and daughters. They go out, they populate the world. Um, And again, this is going to imply, um, just for the sake of being upfront about it, incest, right? Um, Adam, if Adam and Eve are the first progenitors, then absolutely their children are going to have to mate together. Um, we actually don't see until the book of Leviticus, which is the third book in the Pentateuch and the, the books of Moses, where we start seeing proscriptions against um, incest. Now there may have been um, more of just an understood prescription against it, but there weren't Levitical or statutory prescriptions against it. Um, so we'll see things like Abraham actually marries his half sister. Um You'll find, uh, in some of his descendants go back and marry their half sisters. And sometimes, uh, there are multiple people, and I'm not going to even be able to go over all this. Um, but from, uh, Ham, who is Noah's, one of Noah's sons, seems to probably have incestuous relationships with his, his own mother. Um, we'll see, um, uh, Lot, uh, which is Abraham's nephew who takes the, the good land. Um, his daughters wind up barren and so they have incestuous relationships with Lot. Uh, and whenever these things happen, in fact, whenever uh, a non marital relationship happens in Genesis, what's fascinating is every single time without a fault, problems come from it. In fact, uh, it's a Genesis 7, I think it is. We, we meet a guy named Lamech and we're told he was a murderer and he took multiple wives. So, literally, the very first person who, um, Practices polygamy in the scriptures is a guy who's known to be a, other than Cain, he's like the first real, uh, real murderer. And he even cites Cain. He's like, if, if, if Cain is avenged, then let Lamech be avenged sevenfold or something like that. Um, I'd have to go back and reread the citation, but it's just fascinating, right? So bear in mind also, whenever you read the scriptures, oftentimes you're going to find things in them that are kind of hard to read or hard to understand. And, and one of the things that's important to bear in mind is that not everything that's reported is condoned. Uh, You're going to see a lot of people, in fact, wind up um, taking on multiple wives. And a lot of times that's going to wind up causing all sorts of problems. Uh, So it's just kind of fascinating to see. So the second covenant is a covenant between Noah and his families, Uh, Noah and his wife and his kids and their wives. And this seems like a reboot. Now, how much of a reboot this is, uh, we're not exactly sure. Was this a worldwide global flood? It seems to be. The, The wording indicates that this was a major event. But if you lived... You know in the middle of a you know 700 square mile area and that whole whole area was flooded for 40 days and 40 nights uh or whatever it happened to be that would seem like the entire world right so there's lots of ways we can kind of understand this and 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 take it with a a grain of salt um so like the story of adam and eve before as well as the stories of abraham isaac and jacob all of these historical stories are going to be couched in language that sometimes uses figurative language to convey a real primordial moment in history one of the interesting things about the flood though. Is that you can find this account in non-Semitic accounts. So stories like the Epic of Gilgamesh that almost are word for word the same. Guy makes a big boat. I think in Gilgamesh, it's like a cube, like literally it's a cube, uh, takes two of each kind of animal, uh, as well as other animals to eat and, and whatnot. So most people don't realize that, that Noah actually took multiple animals, not just two of each kind on the boat. Um, he took food animals, <laughs> animals to eat. Um, So there's always questions and I don't have an answer for you about these questions, but is it possible that these stories um, make up, you know, or, 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 or linked to some sort of a primordial memory that exists in early man that was passed down as, a, as an oral tradition along multiple lines. You know, maybe over time it, it changed slightly as to whether or not the, the boat was a square or not or, or whatnot. Right. But This seems to be a story that would have been passed on from, you know, from father to son or mother to daughter, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, so is it possible? That, uh, you know, when you see accounts that are similar, like the accounts in, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, are they actually, you know, is, is is there just something about floods that people found traumatic, and so they would write stories about them? Or is it the case that they are, you know, recording this echo in, in the human, <laughs> collective human subconscious, more or less? Um, I think it's a fascinating concept to ponder. Anyway. So ultimately, um, again, after Adam begets, Seth and Cain has been kicked out, um, the boys as well as all the other children grow up and they populate the earth. From the line of Cain, we get men who tend to be, I guess, more wicked. From the line of Seth, we get men who tend to be more righteous and more holy. Uh, but over time, we see the sons of God have relations with the daughters of men. Um, and so the lord says my my spirit will not contend with men forever for they are mortal and their days will be limited to 120 years now this doesn't take place right away what you see is is this decline in the ages of people uh starting here but you still see people living 800 700 600 500 years um when we get to abraham and sarah i know sarah dies when she's 127, I think it is. Uh, Abraham makes it into the 150s, I think. Um, so we do see that that even in the antediluvian or post-flood period, um, lifespans live on. But so we, we see this intermingling of people, um, the wicked and the just, the wicked and, and the godly. And it seems to be the case that it's probably referring to these two lines of people, the lines from Seth and the lines from uh, from Cain uh, as the sons of God and and the sons of, of man. And so we see over time um things get worse and worse and worse. And eventually God finds a man named Noah who is just and righteous and decides that he's going to again hit the reset button. So we read this in Genesis. And I have a lot of text here. I used to this used to be a class where we go back and forth and find the, the readings in the scriptures. Uh, but in order to streamline things, uh I just have that's why this is so long, is I just have the text printed out. And I wanna lean as heavily as possible on the scriptures for this because I want you to to have as deep of a knowledge of the scriptures as possible. So God says this to Noah. He says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you, Make that nice and bold. (laughs) And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Uh, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So we see that language similar to Adam and Eve. Uh, The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth. So there's another change here. And on every bird of the air and everything creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. But into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So this is fascinating, right? Uh After the fall, man has to eat his broccoli. Right. Uh, but now with the flood and, and the, the conclusion of the flood, um, all of a sudden man has permission to eat the animals. It doesn't mean that he did or didn't before this. We don't know. Um, but it certainly seems to be the case that here uh, it's actually sanctioned by God. Uh, and he also says this only you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is the blood in it. Um, and we're going to see, uh, later on in Leviticus, we'll talk about this down the road. Uh, there are, there are explicit prescriptions about consuming blood because blood is something that is sacred, right? And it's so, you know, in some ways it's very primal, but in some ways it's very human, right? And we are fleshly creatures. We are body and blood and soul. Right. Um, We are those three things together. And so blood is a real thing. It is literally it's biological poetry in a sense. You know, when you see blood, blood has real meaning. It carries real important. If you if you see blood splattered on the wall, you you don't just cursory not worry about it. I mean, you might want to figure out what this is. You know, whose is it? Is it a person's or an animal's or, um, you know, You have lots of different questions, but blood is very symbolic and again, we're going to see blood plays a big role in a lot of these covenants. And in fact, here we have the washing of the world uh, through the flood, which basically wipes off all of the humanity, at least in that area, if not in the whole globe. And, um, in the process i mean that that's implied blood i mean it wouldn't have been bloodshed in the sense of like a sword you know or as we'll see later on circumcision um but it would still be the cost of blood and so we see this so for your life blood will require a reckoning from every animal uh and from every human being um Whoever sheds the blood of a man shall, man, man, by man shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. I pulled this for translation. I wish it would have said mankind. Um, And you be fruitful and multiply about on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him. As for me, I'm establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the domestic animals, and every animal on the earth that is with you. As many as came out of the ark. I am establishing my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will recall my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said this to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So covenant, 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 covenant. So literally the word covenant becomes much more explicit here. Um, Unfortunately, after the flood, we do see a lot more debauchery. Noah winds up getting drunk. um, And then we have this weird phrase that some people have implied means uh, it's more of a euphemism than it is a little thing. Uh, so when, when Noah is naked, we read that one of his sons, his younger son's ham, uh, looks upon his father's nakedness. Um, obviously we've seen nakedness implies something, uh, you know, far more than just plain nudity. Um, And so it it seems to be the case. It's strongly implied by a number of people, including uh, rabbinical sources, um, all the way down to guys like uh, your Scott Hans, um, that what really wound up happening is that Ham wound up sleeping with his own mother um, and. Possibly be getting child from him. And so we actually see in a sense, it's a it's a usurpation of the throne, right? Ham says, I'm the youngest son. Um, And it's just this is the implied context as to the oldest son, Shem, goes the the lion's share of the inheritance, right? So all of the world is given primarily to Shem, but also his brothers Um, and Ham seeks to usurp his father's authority, um, possibly by having some sort of incestuous relationship. I mention this only because we're going to see this happen again and again and again. Also, we're going to see uh, that Genesis traits, traces the descendants of Ham uh, from Cain. I believe it is, obviously goes, uh, well, they don't trace it directly to Cain. But from Ham, we get to the Canaanites, um, as well as to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, And everything else. And so the descendants of Ham seem to be wicked, even though we just had this flood to wipe the the wickedness off the face of the earth. All right. I'm going to kill this here just because it's causing some drag on my screen. There we go. Um, So after this, we get to the next covenant. And the next covenant takes some time to wind up happening. But it is absolutely one of the most important things that happens in the book of Genesis, uh, if not the most important. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this. This is the covenant between Abram, who's later changed to Abraham, uh, and all of his descendants, uh, his tribe with God. The covenant is basically this. Trust me and I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars. Abraham's role is the leader of all of his people, uh, the chieftain of the tribe. And of course, Jesus is the leader of the church, the leader of his people. Um, we are his tribe. Right. Uh, and the sign is going to wind up being circumcision. Now, whether or not this was always the case, going to be the case or not, I don't know. We'll talk about that in a minute because uh, we're going to see some interesting things. Um, Abraham the name Abram means father of many. Later, he's changed to Abraham, which means father of nations. Abram is a descendant of one of Noah's more righteous offspring, Shem. And when we meet him in Genesis 3, uh, 1130, he's married to Sarai, uh, but Sarai was barren and she had no child. This is a common motif that we see all throughout scripture as well. Whenever God wants to change the world, he finds somebody who is barren and gives them a child. He does this with uh, Sarai here. He will do this ultimately uh, with one of Abraham's Sons, uh, uh, Jacob and his wife um, Rebecca. Uh, she will, or Rachel rather, she will uh, be be barren and be crying out to God, and, and she'll he'll give her a child. It'll happen with Hannah, who bears Samuel, the prophet, who's the one who ultimately gives us King Saul and King David. Uh, he does this with Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are the kinsfolk to Jesus and Mary, uh, and they conceive and bear John the Baptist, who comes before Jesus. And then he does this, of course, with Mary, who was barren in a unique way, uh, having taken some sort of a vow of, of perpetual virginity, which we'll talk about. Um, These were not unheard of. There's actually, you can find reference to these in the book of Numbers, uh, which is part of the Deuterocanonical. So literally, uh, the idea of of women living chaste and celibate lives is right there in the Old Testament. You don't have to look very far to find it. Uh, And it seems to be the case that Mary was such a person. Um, But anyway, so whenever God wants to change things, he makes a baby. (laughs) So a few verses later, uh, we read the very beginning of Genesis 12. Now the Lord God said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless, those, bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And by you, all families of the earth shall bless themselves. So Abram went. Abram was 75 years old. So literally, and it's the next verse, literally, this is an old man leaving his kin, leaving his friends, leaving his family, um, and trusting in God. And he's spoken of even in, in the New Testament scriptures, like Hebrews 12 or Hebrews 11 uh, as, uh, you know, having belief in God and trust in God and, and that being credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham leaves with his wife, Sarai, uh, as well as, uh, all of his, Uh, entourage. He would have servants. He would have, you know, all sorts of people, but he has, of course, no child of his own. And he's traveling along, along with other people. He's traveling with someone who's called sometimes his brother, but uh, is actually his nephew. He's the son of Abraham's brother, uh, Haran. And so his name is Lot. And at one point they become unable to travel together because they both have these massive herds and all these people, and they're fighting over who gets to graze here and there. And Abraham finally says, you know what, Lot, you choose where you want to eat, where you want to stay, and I will give you that land. And Lot looks around and sees the, the greenest pastures and says, this is where we're going to be. And so they wind up staying there. And there's a old side story about Lot that I'm not even going to get into because it's not going to really apply to what we're talking about. But it's kind of interesting to see what winds up happening of him. He winds up living in Sodom and Gomorrah and everything else. So the Lord says to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look From the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all of the land which you see here, I will give to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, so shall your your descendants can also be counted. So God, when Abraham deals justly with Lot, already is making a promise that he's going to give him this land and he's going to give him, more importantly, descendants. Abraham, this poor old 75-year-old man who has no children, whose name means father of many. So anytime somebody comes up and addresses him as father of many, uh, you know, where where, where are your kids, Abraham? Where, where are your kids, father of many? Oh, I don't have any. And as he's traveling to the land which God is leading him, he's gonna meet some strange people. Um, and there's so many little points that I, I wanna dwell on that I don't have time to do. I'm just gonna point out a couple of them that are very, very interesting because they are precursors to Christ, uh, or hidden hidden images of the Trinity. Uh at one point he comes to Salam or Salem. Um, And he meets Melchizedek, who is the high priest and king of Salem. Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Uh, Salem means peace, salam. Melchizedek uh, means the king of righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And he comes out bringing bread and wine. And he was a priest of God most high. There is no priesthood at this point. There's no Levitical priesthood, right? So he is a priest according to some sort of older order. Um, and in fact, I believe that we see a link between Melchizedek and, um, I'm trying to remember what it was now. One of, anyway, one of Noah's other sons, uh, is drawn by the Jewish scholars. If you read like the Mishnah and stuff and, uh, Melchizedek blesses Abram. He says, blessed be Abram by God, most high maker of heaven and earth and blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So Abraham gives a man, gives this man a tithe. Right. So don't forget to support your church. Give a tithe. <laughs> so this king of priest, um, again, this king of righteousness is the king of Salem, which later becomes Yeru Salam, which means God provides peace and in fact we'll see uh, where all this takes place in jerusalem is where god will in fact provide peace and he'll provide it through the one who is a priest forever according to the order of melchizedek which is jesus this is something the book of hebrews points out points out explicitly uh who comes with an offering of bread and wine uh he is uh, a priest forever uh and he does bring peace uh, in that land. So and he is the king of righteousness, right? Uh, and the king of peace. So just there's so many different ways that that Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus. And of course, the, the New Testament writers will will draw this explicitly as well. And then finally, we have the first mention of a covenant. And this is one of my favorite passages in all scripture. I have lots of favorite passages, but this is one of them. Um, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And he said, Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, one of his servants. And Abram said, Behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man, This man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Which, of course, we might be thinking that means, you know, because there's so many, but he actually means something else. And I'll come back to that in a minute. And then he said to him, just so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a three-year-old she-goat, a ram that was three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought these out. He cut them in two and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and low dread fear and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abraham, know, that of, know of a surety that your descendants will be sojourners in a land that is not their own, and they will be slaves there, and they will be oppressed for four hundred years, but I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquities of the Amorites shall not be complete." And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, I love this passage for a bunch of reasons, but the one I'm going to point out first. Uh, is right here, uh, the stars. So this is all the same passage. Uh, this is all the same moment of time. And we see God says, you know, you're, you're thinking this is nighttime. He says, step outside, look at the number of the stars if you can. And obviously most people couldn't do it anyway, because it's just hard to count that high, especially back before numbers have been invented, <laughs> more or less. You would have counting numbers so your basics, but the idea of counting to millions thousands and millions and, and, and trillions and everything else would just be unfathomable. But then we see In the same line of events, the sun then goes down and then the sun had gone down completely and it was dark. So when God tells Abraham to step outside and count the stars, it's daytime. And I love that because that is a picture of what faith really is. Faith isn't just belief in the unseen, but faith is certainty that what is unseen is nonetheless true. And we all have faith. When you step outside during the day and you look up at the sky, you have faith that the stars are still there, even though you can't see them. You know that they're still there. And so we are called to have faith in God in the same way that we have faith that the stars are there during the day. It's not just a blind ascent, but literally it is saying, I believe this to be the case, and I know, in fact, that this is this is the case, right? That this is this is the truth. Um, and also it also shows that that Abraham himself is not going to be able to see many of his descendants, um, alas. He is, uh, going to see only a few of them before he passes. So just the same, you know, you can't really see the stars during the, during the day. So he, you know, the, the, the promise was obscured from his vision, uh, figuratively here. And of course in real life as well, but he believes, uh, and here we see again, God making this covenant, um. And this is the Lord promising to keep his half of the bargain, so to speak, right? This is an ancient form of oath swearing where you would you would stand in a bunch of blood uh, amidst split open animals, and you'd make an oath to someone. And your oath would basically say, if I don't keep my word to you, may, may the same thing here be done to me. So God is literally taking it upon himself, um, based on Abraham's faith thus far, 75-year-old man leaving everything and, and following God, um, to take it upon himself to make this arrangement. And... Uh, Anyway, so immediately after this, Abram and Sarah wind up doubting all that the Lord has said, and so they take matters in their own hands because uh, God promises that His descendants will be uh, like the, the 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 dust of the earth, right, like the stars in the sky. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian maid. A uh, slave whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my maid that I may still obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Uh, rather than saying, wait a minute, no, God didn't say anything about this. they're, They're trying to force God's hand. They're trying to make sure that the covenant happens. So in a sense, they're actually wavering in their faith. And so he goes into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my maid to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. My goodness, I mean, this was her idea. (laughs) <laughs> Poor Abram. Uh, there's actually, this is a callback to Adam and Eve too, right? You know, the woman institutes the idea in a sense, but it's the man that goes with it and the man that ultimately reaps most of the punishment. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her as she fled from her. However, an angel of the Lord finds Hagar the slave, and tells her to return to her mistress and submit to her, and then says, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they cannot be numbered for their multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heeded your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man, his hand against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against all of his kinsmen. Abraham, was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. So this has been like 11 years of sojourning and he hadn't had a son yet. So he comes to Hagar uh, 10 years in, uh, has the kid, and, and now he's, he's 86 when, when Ishmael is born. As a quick aside, I bring this up in part because I wanna point out something about Ishmael. Um, Ishmael is the father of the Arab people, um, and the Muslims who seek to worship the God of Abraham seek to trace their lineage back to Ishmael. Now, Islam as a religion is, it, it's in a sense, it's akin to our faith, like a distant cousin. In fact, the catechism even says this explicitly because they're seeking again to worship the one true God, the God of Abraham, um. But born of a slave woman, Islam itself means to submit. Muslim means one who submits. And they view our relationship to God, Allah, as one of a slave to his master, as opposed to Abba, which Jesus says we can call God, which means Father. Nevertheless, though, we can see the ramifications of this promise even today as the Muslims, of course, are at war against their brothers, and at least principally uh, the Jews and the Christians. Meanwhile, 13 years passed, and then when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So God is actually calling him out for not believing him. He says, I will make my covenant between you and me, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, which is what Abraham means. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth of you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and all of their generations for an everlasting covenant to be the God God to you and to your descendants after you. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you through their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male amongst you will be circumcised. You will be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He that is eight days old amongst you shall be circumcised. Every male through your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not your offspring, he that is in your house and that is bought with money, either one shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah, or Sarah, shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will be the mother of a nation. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Abraham balks. Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live in thy sight. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. But as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly, and he shall be the father of twelve princes. And I will make him a great nation. But I establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. So God is literally saying, first off, uh, both sort of a punishment, uh, circumcision, right? At, at this age, in the, in an era of not having surgical steel, uh, or anesthetic, <laughs> or antiseptic, uh, God is saying the sign of my covenant is cut it off, <laughs> the thing that caused you a problem. But also, it's actually kind of a beautiful thing, because generally, the only person who would ever see uh, the man's penis would be himself and his wife. And so every time they come together henceforth and see that it's a reminder of the fact that they are part of this covenant uh, with God. But again, Abraham ceased believing in God for a little bit. He, he wavered or, or took things in his own hand. And so he took uh, uh, um, Hagar as his his maidservant, as his his concubine. And as we see, nothing but problems issue forth from this very fact, uh, the fact of of him taking her uh, as as a concubine. And in fact, we're still facing the ramifications of that uh, to this day. And then meanwhile, God's also saying this time next year, uh, you're going to have a kid, you're going to have Isaac. And so literally God's saying, cut it off, but also you got about three months to heal and get it on <laughs> because you're going to wind up having a kid this time next year. And that brings us to another place in Scripture where the the Trinity is prefigured, and this is right after this event here in, in Genesis 18, where the Lord appears to Abraham both in the person of three people and also as the person of one person. Uh, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Marmra, as he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men stood in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I fetch a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham hastened to the tent, and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, and knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it, and he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and set it before them, and he stood them stood by them under the tree while they ate. No, this isn't kosher, by the way, Um, the kosher laws come a lot later, but it shows that the kosher laws uh, are intrinsically not things that are moral or immoral. The Jews were obliged to follow them because they were uh, ceremonial laws um, in the same way that we're obliged to follow holy days of obligation, right? Um, But they're not intrinsically things that are immoral, because here we have these three-in-one Godhead men approaching him and eating non-kosher. You don't mix milk and meat. That's that's not kosher. So then they said to him, "Where is Sarah, your wife?" And he said, "She's in the tent." The Lord said, uh, "I will surely return to you in the spring, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son." And Sarah was listening at the door of the tent. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and had ceased to be with Sarah after the man of women, meaning she'd well gone through menopause. So Sarah laughed to herself and said, After I've grown old and my husband is old, shall I still have the pleasure, the pleasure of a child, let alone sexual pleasure? And the Lord God said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you in the spring, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, no, you did laugh. And then a few chapters later, we see the conclusion of this. The Lord visits Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore a son uh, to Abraham in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son uh, Isaac Uh, And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God has commanded him to do. Uh, Abraham was 100 years old when his son, Isaac, was born. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me laughing will laugh over me. And the name Isaac means God has made me laugh. So Isaac is born and brought into the covenant, but God's not through testing Abraham's faith because then Abraham begins his journey. He he began parting from his family uh, of the past. And now God's going to actually make a decision or make him, uh, he's going to make a request. He doesn't make a command. He makes a request. And the request is that if he's willing to part himself, even from the family of his future. So after these things, uh, some time goes by and then God tested Abraham and he says to him, Abram, uh, and Abraham says, here I am. And he says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, so Ishmael's not even in the picture, your only son Isaac, uh, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abram rose early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood from the burnt offering, and Arose and went to the place that God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hands the fire and the knife, so they both went off together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering?" Abraham said, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide the lamb. And this is actually interesting because in the Hebrew, it's it's hard to understand if it's God. God will provide the lamb himself or God will provide himself the lamb uh, for an offering, my son. So they both went off. Together. Well, first off, how old is Isaac here? We don't know. Uh, the next story that we see in Genesis uh, 23 tells us that Sarah died when she's 127. We know that she had Isaac when she was 90. Uh, so he would probably be less than 37, but we actually don't know exactly how old he was in this. He's carrying the wood. So he's not just a little kid, right? We're, we're talking about a, a a man, right? Isaac is a man at this point. And uh, that's, that's important to bear in mind, because at any point, Isaac could could put a stop to this, but he doesn't. And you'll notice, again, that it sounds like both he and Abraham have a sense that God will provide. In fact, Abraham, in all of his language, he keeps saying things that lead you to believe uh, that he believes that he's not going to have to offer up Isaac. Or if even if he does, he believes that God could give him back. Right? Abraham is is completely confident at this point that the God who's worked this miracle and given him a son... Uh, is to be believed, and so he just prods on. In fact, Abraham got it says right here after he thinks God tests Abraham, says, Go and uh, offer your only son Isaac, go to the land of Moria, offer him up. So Abraham rose early the next morning, saddled his ass, and took two men and his son Isaac. Literally, he doesn't even balk, he just says, Okay, he doesn't say anything, he just does it right, he's obedient. Um, So bear in mind, Isaac is stronger. He's carrying the wood. And then they come to the place which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there, and he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, who, again, Abraham's in his hundreds at least, Um, and Isaac is a strapping young man who could carry the wood. So Isaac could easily fight back, but he doesn't. Then Abraham put forth his hand. He took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the ladder. Do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing as you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes up, and looked, and behold, there was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time, from heaven and said by myself i have sworn says the lord because you have done this and have not withheld your son your only son i will indeed bless you and i will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies and by your descendants shall all nations of the earth bless themselves because you have obeyed my voice So in this story, we have Abraham's faith that God can do all things. He's seen miracles at this point, and he trusts even to the point— in all in all things, he trusts that God is going to provide. And this also shows that he had much faith in the one true God, much more faith in the, the many pagans who have their false gods and who offered child sacrifice, but also shows that God doesn't actually want it. He just wanted Abraham to know. He wanted to know that Abraham loved him as much as the pagans of their false gods. But I think he also wanted Abraham to know that Abraham trusted him as much or more then the pagans trust their face, their false gods. Again, we have Isaac, who's a young man who could overpower his, his father. So he is a willing sacrifice and he is called the one and only in Hebrew, but this is translated in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament as the beloved. And thus we see uh, a, similar, uh, a similar word being used for Jesus, uh, the beloved son. And thus we see the beloved son himself carries the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain. Bear in mind that this mountain range of Moria, uh, which is, is where the temple is going to wind up being built. We see this referenced in Second Chronicles 3. Uh, so this is part of the same mountain range upon which Jesus is crucified uh, at Golgotha. In fact, it's probably not even a stone's throw from where this ultimately happens. So the son uh, climbs the mountain, carrying the wood for the sacrifice, a willing sacrifice. When they get there, they see a lamb caught with thorns crowning its head. Think about that. And then it's promised that on this mountain, the Lord will provide. This is the final ratification of the covenant God gives to, to Abram uh, and uh, the giving of persons in mutual exchange. Abraham uh, left everything. He left his family behind and then he left his own flesh, snip, snip. And now he does not withhold even his own beloved son. Thus, this whole event uh, is one, it's often hard to initially grasp. It sounds horrible. It sounds barbaric and brutal, and it's been lampooned by many people who don't see the poetry going on here, but it becomes the type and the prefigurement of that very event promised back in Genesis 3.15. Abraham is a model of faith for us. This is what the catechism says. When God calls him, Abraham goes forth as the Lord had told him. Abraham's heart is entirely submissive to the word, and so he obeys. As a final stage in the purification of his faith, Abraham, who had received the promises, is asked to sacrifice the son that God had given him. Abraham's faith does not weaken. God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering. For he considered that God was able to even raise men from the dead. And so the father of believers is conformed to the likeness of the father who will not spare his son, but will deliver him up for all. And thus the author of Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place where he received an inheritance. And when he went, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who had received the promises that and was in the act of offering up uh, his only son. So literally we see that faith here. The faith that Abraham has is a faith that implies obedience. It's not merely mental assent. Uh, in fact, faith without mental ascent or, or mental ascent without action is meaningless. We're going to find out. So Isaac begets. Uh, and so that's the end of the, of the story with, with Abraham, right? Uh, Abraham offers up Isaac, but he doesn't actually do it. And then they come home. Isaac never marries a second wife. And so he actually has a pretty tame life by all accounts. Um Isaac begets Jacob and Esau. Um, Isaac meets his wife. Actually, one of his servants meets his wife, uh, back home at the well, which is where you often will meet, Moses is going to meet his his wife at a well. Uh, getting water was, was woman's work, and so you would often find women at the well. Um, though there are a few interesting instances where you will find men who get water. Jesus actually, when he celebrates the Passover, tells the apostles, to look for a man carrying a jar. And we've actually found that, uh, there are a lot of celibate orders like the Essenes, uh, in the first century. And so when you live in a celibate order of men, somebody has to do the water work. And so it would be one of those people. And, uh, there's a whole, like a whole realm of stuff we can go into on this. That's just utterly fascinating. I don't have time to get into all of it. And there, you, it would take thousands of hours to unpack all of the stuff that's, that's even going on here. um, But anyway, going back to the story at hand, Isaac finds Rebecca. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Here we go again. And the Lord God granted his prayer, and Rebecca, his wife,